Monday, March 22nd. Welcome to Market Forward. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Jason Moser. Good to see you. Howdy. We've got an ETF built on FOMO. We're going to talk <laughs> spinoffs and share an investing lesson from the big dance. But we're going to start with the deal of the day in the railroad industry, no less. Canadian Pacific Railway is buying Kansas City Southern. It is a cash and stock deal worth $25 billion. And this will be the first freight rail network to connect Canada, the US, and Mexico. Shares of Kansas City Southern are up on this announcement. That really shouldn't surprise anyone. Up about 12% today. Up 150% for the past year. Sure. That surprised me. Well, I mean, railroads, very interesting type of investment. I mean, I think with railroads, much like these sort of staid, boring businesses with railroads, they make a lot more sense the longer that you own those shares. And I think if you look at uh, if you look at Canadian Pacific's uh, stock chart, for example, I mean, you, you'll see that play out over the course of um, of five and ten years. And um, I, I, this is an interesting deal from a number of perspectives. I mean, to me, uh, really, the, the headline is, and then there were six. Uh, and what I mean by that is that now we uh, will see consolidation in this space to where we had seven Class One railroads. Now, now that's whittled down to six, and ultimately, this is the joining of the two smallest uh, in the Class One railroads. And, and as a reminder for all of those of you uh, who are wondering, uh, Class One railroads, what are they, and, and who are they? I mean, these these are generally based on size and coverage, uh, but Class One railroads are BNSF. Uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, CSX, a Grand Trunk Corporation, which is Canadian Nationals operations, and you had Kansas City Southern, uh, you have Norfolk Southern, uh, Sioux Line Corporation, which is Canadian Pacific's operations, and then Union Pacific. So, of those seven, we're seeing the, the two smallest come together here uh, in this deal, and uh, it, it, it seems like a pretty fair one. I mean, it values uh, Kansas City at an enterprise value of around uh, $29 billion uh, on a multiple basis. It's around 20 times EV to EBITDA, which is a bit of a premium to what uh, Canadian Pacific trade for today, uh, and, and uh, it looks like, based on the math here, that uh, shareholders of, of Kansas City will get close to half a share of Canadian Pacific and $90 in cash. So, I think that comes out to $275, ultimately, per uh, Kansas City share when this gets done. But I, I think the key for this, and I mean, with acquisitions, it really all boils down to why are they doing this? Does it make sense? I think in this case, it really does make perfect sense. It's a very complementary deal. There's no real overlap in these networks. I mean, they, they cover two two different areas. And, and so, this is ultimately going to bring, uh, like I said, the two smallest of the, of the class one railroads together. It'll make them a little bit bigger, make them a little bit more competitive. But it, 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 it forms the first rail network that connects the US, Mexico, and Canada. So, therein lies the potential competitive advantage if they are able to execute this deal and continue operating this business with the efficiency that they've been able to operate both of them to date. So, you're not expecting a coherent-like bidding war for Kansas City Southern? No, no, I don't think so. I think when you see what's going on with Coherent, and that's that seems to be more about what companies like Lamentum or Two Six can do with that technology. Um, this, to me, really is. I, I think just just based on the size of these two railroads, the the complementary nature of the deal. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I, I'd be very surprised 
if there were a bidding war. With that said, I mean, anything can happen. Clearly, uh, Kansas City shares not reflecting the full value of the deal today. That could be for any number of reasons. I don't think there's going to be any regulatory concerns here uh, because it's not really about eliminating competition, so to speak. And I, I don't know. I mean, given because they're the two smaller uh, class one railroads, I mean, it's it's not like you're creating some behemoth just this, that's going to knock these other uh, operators on on their backside, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I think this this deal should play out. I think it probably works out well for shareholders. Again, railroads very boring, but but very very uh, capital intensive, strong competitive advantages in that established network. Um, and, and they really do serve a purpose. It's hard to see that purpose being disrupted in any in any major fashion here in the coming years. Our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Got an email from Pierce in Ireland. He writes, I was an investor in Amazon until I sold to allocate capital elsewhere. I think the company is great. And if Amazon Web Services was floated as a separate business, I would no, I would have no problem allocating, but the lack of margins in the retail business concerns me. What do you think? Um, it's a great question because, you know, this is the question we always ask when there's a spinoff. It's like, okay, what? Where is the value? Where is the future? Which one should you know? If you're uh, an Amazon shareholder already, presumably, if they were to spin off web services, you'd be a, an owner in both businesses. Um, but he raises something which is a legitimate question. You know, Amazon Web Services has fueled so much of Amazon's growth that, yeah, as a standalone business, maybe it, it becomes very quickly one of the largest public companies out there. What does that do to the the retail business it leaves behind? Um, I, I mean, I, I I do think that's an interesting thought exercise because it, it, for Amazon, for all of the success it's witnessed to date, I mean, it, if you think about years ago, I mean, I, I don't think many, if anybody, was really modeling in uh, the potential for the web services side of the business. I mean, for the longest time, it was basically just a really well kept secret, and we didn't know. The potential. We didn't really know where you know, that cloud opportunity would be, uh, as as where it is today. Um, you know, when I look at Amazon today, and as, as I'm, I'm an Amazon shareholder, I've been an Amazon shareholder for I, I think probably around ten years or so now. Um, very happy, happy owner. And and if they spun the AWS side of the business off, uh, I, I don't, I don't think I'd feel compelled to ditch the retail side of the business. I think the retail side of the business is really compelling, particularly because what we're watching internationally play out um, ultimately is is going to be, you know, that's going to be as strong of a retail business, if not potentially stronger than what we're seeing in the U.S. today. Um, but, but when you look at the actual business of Amazon Web Services, I mean, it's tremendous. I mean, just looking at the annual, the, the revenue run rate here, as reported over the last several years, go back to, to the fourth quarter of 2018, they were reporting a $30 billion run rate. 
in in fourth quarter of 2019, it was $40 billion. And in the fourth quarter of 2020, they just reported it was $51 billion. And, and the asterisk there is that they added more revenue quarter over quarter and year over year than in any quarter in its history. So, th- the growth there at AWS is actually accelerating. It seems like it's getting stronger. Um, even as competitors out there like Google and Microsoft continue to pick up share, I mean, Amazon's picking up its fair share along the way as well. And, and the bottom line is that Amazon Web Services is well more than half of the company's total operating profit. And, and that's, that's pretty impressive. When you think about that annual revenue run rate, $51 billion, and then you think about the fact that Amazon chalked up trailing 12-month revenue is, is just under $400 billion. I mean, $386 billion in trailing 12-month revenue. You can see how valuable that web services side of the business is to that bottom line. And, and that's not going to change. I mean, that's, that's, I think, where they really have the pricing power. I think there's some tremendous switching costs that develop over time. Uh, certainly, I understand the strategy of just constantly lowering those prices in order to get people in the door, because they Think the more the more people they get to use AWS, the more feedback they get, so they can iterate, develop, um, and evolve and get better. So there's a nice little network effect in play there as well. So um, I, I mean, Amazon Amazon does a lot of different things now, and as a shareholder, I, you know, I, I don't see any reason to consider ditching these shares anytime soon just just because you you've got what is what is really still a fairly immature e-commerce business domestically i know it sounds odd to say but the fact of the matter is there's still plenty of e-commerce opportunity domestically the tremendous opportunity remaining internationally and then, and then frankly i think aws is still really just getting started uh, but 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 yeah i mean when you look at the numbers that, that amazon web services is just such a tremendous part of the business it's a uh, really, really good story for investors. We got an email from Mike in Ohio. He writes, I know you don't usually talk about ETFs, but I could not not comment on this one and get your take on it. Is this the fifth rider of the market bubble apocalypse? <laughs> and he sent a link to a story that CNBC had about an ETF that is coming soon built on FOMO. This is the Collaborative Investment Series Trust announced it has a, and for those unfamiliar, FOMO, the fear of missing out. They have registered a FOMO ETF, which they say will track securities that reflect current or emerging trends. They're going to rebalance it weekly. (sighs) (laughs) You seem skeptical. (laughs) You know, I... I want to be skeptical because I just uh. I I you know I say all the time you say this when we're talking about a given business and we say hey look I I'm not betting against this stock I don't own this I like I don't have a stake in this just as a human being I kind of want this to fail because I just, <laughs> like it's just it's just appealing it's just appealing to uh, a, a part of us as human beings that that we should probably work to quell a little bit, but I don't know. I don't. Uh, I, let me put, let me put it this way: I don't. <laughs> I don't knock collaborative investment series trust for doing this. <laughs> no, I, I I don't either. I'm with you. I mean, there's a little part of there's a little part of you that thinks, well, this probably isn't going to work out very well, and 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 I mean. I, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I mean, I don't know that I'm rooting for it to fail or succeed either way. I mean, it'll be it'll be interesting to watch, but it does. 
I mean, it really does speak to the power of emotions in investing, right? I mean, we talk about that a lot, and, and, and I think about that often. I mean, investing, I mean, the I think a lot of people feel like the numbers, the math behind investing is really difficult. Actually, I mean, think about it, the numbers behind investing are really easy. I mean, it's just basic math. The difficult part of investing, really, I think, is the actual the psychology of it. I mean, controlling your emotions, understanding the emotions, the psychology of, of the market, um, that's a little bit more difficult to wrap your head around sometimes. And uh, this, to me, Really plays into something that is uh, very dangerous as as an investor in FOMO. I mean, fear of missing out is real. That's that's a that's a feeling. That's an emotion that is easily stoked. I think more now than ever before, thanks to the internet and social media and whatnot. Um, I, I hope that this is something that where the name of the fund is a bit more of an attention getter. Uh, in relation to what it's actually really focused on. I mean, it says that it's going to track securities that reflect current or emerging trends. I, I mean, I hope those trends are more based in fact and less uh, based on emotion, though I think that probably we're going to see more of the latter there. Um, and, and it's worth noting too. This is going to be a very actively managed ETF. I mean, I think they said it's going to be rebalanced weekly, and so there's going to be a lot of trading. It's not going to be tax efficient, and and that's all just stuff to keep in mind. It 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 certainly is not in line with the way we view investing here at the Fool, and and it's not in line with the way a lot of a lot of folks view investing. But uh, I mean, as as technology continues to open up a whole new world, it, it is certainly opening a whole new world for younger investors who um, are are getting interest, and, and and this is the type of thing that catches their attention in many cases. Um, so maybe there maybe there is maybe there is good that comes from this in in getting folks into investing. Um, I, it reminds me of an article that I read over the weekend. Uh, that was basically talking about all of these stock influencers on social media and how so many folks just blindly follow their advice. And and I mean that's not new. We've seen that clearly. I mean you and I both use Twitter, and I mean you, you see how people react uh, when Elon Musk tweets, for example. It's just insane. I don't understand it, but you know people are happy just to dive in sight unseen. And in my reaction to that article, well, I mean apparently the <laughs> the ability to think for oneself is becoming a, a competitive advantage, not just in investing but in life. And and I think ultimately that's what I would do. I would I would just step back for a second and, and encourage folks. Don't let the fear of missing out <laughs> dictate your in- investing strategy, because investing really is a years-long um, journey. Trends tend to come and go, particularly now. Um, but yeah, th- 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 it feels like this has this has a lot of ways it could go bad. So that ties somewhat into the point I wanted to make about the NCAA basketball tournament. Yeah. Um, so. One of the big upsets over the weekend uh, actually was uh, Loyola University Chicago. Um, by the way, and their their coach is named Porter Moser. I'm assuming there is <laughs> <saw> no <laughs> no relation. I, I have no idea. <laughs> so, um, so this uh, very fun team, Loyola uh, University Chicago, um, and uh, folks might have seen, even if they're not big basketball fans. Um, Sister Jean. Are you familiar with Sister Jean? Sure. Okay. So, for for those who don't know, um, Sister Jean is a nun who works at Loyola. She has been the team chaplain 
for more than 25 years, and she's 101 years old. Yeah, She's 101. She's going to these games. And yesterday, they were playing the University of Illinois, uh, the number one team in the region, in the bracket. And Sister Jean, as she uh, does before every game, um, said a prayer uh, with the team. Here's the prayer she said. As we play Illinois, we ask for special help to overcome this team and get a great win. We hope to score early and make our opponents nervous. We have a great opportunity to convert rebounds as this team makes about 50% of layups and 30% of its three-point shots. Our defense can take care of that. Okay, so she's a nun, but she's not relying solely on faith. <laughs> I love you know, that. She played basketball in high school when she was a young woman. Um, she's a student of the game. Um, but even though she has analytical skills, uh, she knows the game is, is not in her hands. And so she, she has to have faith in others. Sure. And I felt like that was like a great sort of microcosm for us as an inv- individual investors. Like, yeah, don't just blindly follow and you know do your homework analyze things but also understand we're in, investing in businesses that are run by human beings and on some level you have to have faith and and trust those human beings you know it's about the balance i i, I, I totally agree i mean i've i've always always believed and i will always believe this is that investing no matter what no matter what investment you're making investing always requires a certain measure of a leap of faith and and that leap of faith is going to be greater for some ideas than others. But you just have to understand what kind of leap of faith that you're taking there, and 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 understand if it's if it's something in line with what you can handle. Because I I think you're absolutely right. There there, these are businesses that are run by people, and and we are not <laughs> we are not mistake free. And and uh, that that leap of faith, everybody just needs to come to their own reckoning reckoning as as to what measure. Of, of a leap of faith they're comfortable with because it's 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 in every investment that we make. Jason Moser, always great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.